welcome to a very special edition of some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. Today's episode will be presented in three parts, and at the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, the complete story of American crime boss and 16-year federal fugitive James J. Whitey Bulger. Now let's continue with our story about Whitey Bulger. With the Anjula wiretaps humming away and the FBI once again having their backs, Whitey Bulger and Steve Fleming unleashed a violent and brazen reign of terror in Boston that lasted for most of the 80s. Although Bulger had shot some gangster rivals to death in his early battles with the Mullins, his hands-on violence began to ramp up in the late 70s, probably as a result of his newfound power as the most powerful criminal in South Boston. This attitude was evidenced in the matter of Louis Latif, a bookmaker and drug dealer who began to behave erratically, first by murdering several business associates who caught him stealing and then by dealing cocaine. Both behaviors were not only repeatedly unsanctioned by Bulger, Latif also refused to pay rent. Summoned to the upstairs office at Triple O's, Latif was pointedly warned that he was crossing a very serious line. Latif responded that as long as he and Whitey were friends, he didn't have a problem. Bulger fixed him with what must have been a terrifying stare and responded, We're not friends anymore. Latif got off with a stern warning, but then made the mistake of telling Bulger that he was going to murder his bookmaker partner, a last straw. In early April, he was invited to the Triple O's second story, where Bulger stabbed him repeatedly with an ice pick, and Steve Fleming shot him in the head. His body was found in the trunk of his car, in garbage bags, abandoned on a South End street. In another example of his macabre sense of humor, Whitey explained to associates afterwards that Latif, known as a flashy dresser, was wearing green underwear after they stripped his body. Therefore, they made sure that they used green garbage bags so that Louis would be found color-coordinated. Whitey's next caper was a much more intricate, sinister plot that involved legitimate business, FBI corruption, and his longtime associate John Martirano. Former top six accountant John Callahan was a shady business consultant who had gotten a controlling interest in World High Lie, a Connecticut and Florida entity that ran High Lie frontons in both states. But Callahan also had relatively blatant ties to Winter Hill mobsters, including John Martirano, that got his Connecticut gambling license revoked and his board of directors adamant that he resign. Callahan had already hired a retired Paul Rico, attempting to finesse this issue, but the board wouldn't budge. To keep his hand on this cash cow, Callahan then found a buyer for the property, a legitimate and wealthy businessman from Tulsa, Oklahoma named Roger Wheeler, 
It was clean enough to satisfy gaming authorities. Callahan also used his banking contacts to provide a $50 million loan from the First National Bank of Boston. The only stipulations were that Rico was retained as head of security and an accounting protege of Callahan's was named president. Wheeler did not realize that Whitey and Fleming were on the verge of a $10,000 a week payment under the table in a sophisticated automated skim instituted by Callahan, which both he and Rico were already participating in. Wheeler quickly became disillusioned with the diminished profits that he previously expected and ordered an audit by an independent accounting firm, a demand that set in motion a chain of events that eventually prompted Callahan to convince Whitey and Fleming that Wheeler was a threat not only to the operation, but might also raise issues with law enforcement. Despite his better judgment over murdering a prominent civilian, Whitey contacted John Martirano, who was more than willing to accept the assignment. On May 27, 1981, in broad daylight at a country club in Tulsa, Martirano followed Roger Wheeler to his car in the parking lot, and as Wheeler got in, Martirano pulled the door open, put a bullet right between Wheeler's eyes, and hopped into a getaway car driven by another Winter Hill mobster. Tulsa investigators quickly determined that criminals from Boston were probably involved, but when they and Oklahoma City FBI agents contacted Boston FBI, they got nowhere. In September, amidst the background of this serious intrigue, another problem suddenly mushroomed stemming from Steve Fleming's love life. Since the conclusion of his relationship with Lindsay Sear, Whitey Bolger had constructed the perfect social structure to insulate himself from any permanent domestic commitment. Whitey met Teresa Stanley in the 60s, only months after he emerged from prison. Despite already having four young children, Stanley was still a striking blonde, and Bolger began a lengthy relationship in which he served as a type of father figure to her children. He got Stanley out of the projects, moving her and the kids into a much nicer two-story house. Insisting on a traditional family interaction, he demanded that Teresa have dinner on the table every night at a specific time, that the children also be there promptly, and he stressed the importance of school, homework, and diligence. In 1981, when Teresa Stanley's daughter married Montreal Canadian and Boston hockey icon Chris Nyland, Whitey paid for the wedding and walked Karen down the aisle. During the dinner hour, it was understood that there be no interruptions. Friends were instructed not to call between 5 and 7 p.m., and if the phone even rang, Whitey became highly irritated. In her interactions with Whitey, Teresa Stanley was utterly servile especially about the increasingly more erratic schedule that Whitey adhered to, frequently staying out to all hours of the night. On the very infrequent occasions when she conversationally asked him where he had been, she was belligerently and profanely told to mind her own business. Initially, Whitey was probably keeping late hours due to work commitments, but eventually he met another woman, 24-year-old Catherine Grieg, a younger version of Stanley. She was a college graduate and worked as a dental hygienist. Gradually, Whitey ingratiated himself and wore her down to the extent that she gave up her career, moved into an upscale Quincy condo that Whitey bought and knew of Bolger's relationship with Teresa Stanley. He also gave her an unlimited amount of money, clothes, and entertainment. For years, Bolger continued the nightly Brady Bunch routine around the Stanley dinner table and then eventually made his way over to the condo he shared with Grieg to spend the night. Stanley oblivious to the whole arrangement.
Whenever his associates complained of problems in their relationships, Whitey always snickered that he didn't have to deal with such things because, quote, he had his women under control, unquote. Thus, when Steve Fleming came to Whitey with details of a potentially explosive situation, Whitey's response was utterly predictable. Although Fleming also had a long-term domestic partner and even children with a woman named Marion Hussey, he also routinely was involved with much younger women that he dated and then usually quickly discarded. But one girlfriend remained his constant companion for many years. In 1972, Fleming met Deborah Davis in a jewelry store in Brookline when she was 17. Blonde and gorgeous, she was swept off of her feet by the excessive amounts of money, expensive cars, and living spaces that Fleming provided for her. But by 1981, Deborah was no longer interested in remaining the kept mistress of a controlling and possessive gangster, especially one who would never settle down into any kind of normal relationship. Sensing her irritation and distracted by his demanding professional life, Fleming made the mistake of bankrolling a lengthy trip to Acapulco, with Debbie accompanied by her mother. While in Mexico, Davis met a good-looking Mexican businessman who was legitimate and sincere. Unfortunately, Deborah and her mother came back to Southie and endlessly discussed what a wonderful guy she had met, perhaps to prompt Fleming to become jealous and get serious. If anything, this display had the opposite effect. Fleming and Whitey actually went to Acapulco to try and find Deborah's new friend and threaten and possibly even kill him. Unsuccessful, they returned to Boston, and it was clear in the next few weeks that Davis was distancing herself from Fleming. Unbeknownst to him, she had returned to Acapulco and hooked up again with the new guy and was now completely sure that it was over between her and Flemmy. On the 17th of September, Flemmy called Deborah and told her he needed to see her, which was fine with her. She wanted to tell him that she was officially breaking it off. He asked her to come over to a house that he was buying for his parents, a nice place literally right next door to Billy Bolger's house. Deborah prided herself on home decoration, and Fleming mentioned that he wanted her to check out the home and give them all some decorating ideas. Fleming unlocked the front door and let Debbie in. Both Bolger and Fleming have explained that Fleming inadvertently revealed to Davis that he was an informant for an FBI agent to explain why he frequently abruptly left dates and dinners with Davis when his beeper went off. Davis demanded he get very specific, asserting that Fleming was actually cheating on him with other women. Fleming supposedly went so far as to mention Conley by name, and when he explained to Whitey that Davis leaving him for another man might be a problem because of her knowledge, Whitey exploded. If widespread word got out that they were rats for the FBI, they would have a lot of explaining to do to many angry people. No doubt, Deborah had to go. While this sounds plausible or even an acceptable rationalization, both of Whitey's girlfriends knew he was an FBI informant and he hadn't killed them. So did Fleming's mother, who routinely cooked dinner for John Conley when he met Bolger and Fleming at her house. Most likely, both Fleming and Whitey deeply resented Davis's independence and ability to escape from under their thumb. For Fleming, who sensed it was all but over, it was the classic, if I can't have her, nobody can. Whitey had always resented Davis's hold over Fleming, the rifleman formally attempting to put off Whitey and business so he could spend more time with Davis. Her mere attempt to assert her independence would be enough to incur the considerable wrath of Whitey Bolger. As Deborah Davis walked into the vestibule of the house and began wandering down a hallway, 
Bolger suddenly unexpectedly loomed up behind her, forcefully grabbed her by the neck with all of his considerable strength, and began strangling her with his bare hands, dragging her down into the basement in the process. Very quickly, Deborah was dead. Both Fleming and Bolger always denied directly murdering Deborah Davis, but what happened next was undeniable. Flemmy removed Deborah's teeth with a pair of pliers to impede investigation, and then it was wrapped securely in a heavy plastic tarpaulin. Once night fell, the two men tossed the concealed body into the trunk of a car, drove to a secluded area near Quincy's Neponset River, and buried it, the rifleman digging the hole while Whitey watched. Flemmy subsequently claimed that he was immediately filled with remorse over the killing and had an impulse to kill Whitey, the only co-murder that prompted such compunction and anger. When Deborah didn't come home, her mother Olga and eventually the rest of the family became convinced that Flemmy had killed her. He played the disconsolate boyfriend, claiming that she told him she was heading to Texas and he would do whatever it took to find her. His remorse must not have been too profound. Within weeks, he began having sexual relations with Deborah Davis's 14-year-old sister, Michelle. When Olga Davis went to the FBI and insisted that Flemmy and possibly Whitey had murdered her daughter, they listened politely but did not even file an official report concerning the investigation. The only action that the FBI undertook concerning Deborah Davis's disappearance was the covert removal of a missing persons alert that local police placed in the FBI's National Crime Information Center database with the false notation that she was observed in Houston, Texas. It would be decades before the Davises got any specifics as to what happened to their loved one. Only a few months later, a Southie criminal named Brian Halloran tried to extricate himself from some serious criminal charges by going to the FBI with details tying Bolger and Flemmy to the murders of Louis Latif and Roger Wheeler, even claiming to be an eyewitness in both cases. Although Halloran was at least embellishing, if not outright lying about his presence at the Wheeler slaying, he was close enough to Callahan to be able to secretly record potentially incriminating conversations. He pleaded to be allowed into the witness protection program, and the agent handling his case figured he would run that by supervisor John Morris to see what he thought. Morris immediately blurted this out to Conley, who then told Whitey Bulger. For a while, Halloran was smart enough to lay low in Cape Cod in a safe house provided by the FBI, but, bored and desperate, he stupidly headed back to town to visit a relative in South Boston. He also figured he might be able to speak directly to his case agents again about getting into the witness protection program. On the afternoon of May 11, 1982, he decided on having a few drinks at a bar across from Anthony's Pier 4 restaurant, one of the most high-profile areas in the city. It wasn't long before word got back to Whitey that Halloran was in the neighborhood. He quickly rounded up Kevin Weeks and a still unidentified third gunman told Weeks to stake out Halloran and handed him a walkie-talkie. Weeks spotted Halloran and let Whitey know via radio when Halloran was starting to leave. Unfortunately, a friend from Halloran's old Dorchester neighborhood, Michael Donahue, ran into him at the bar and agreed to give him a ride home to Halloran's father's house, which was near where the 32-year-old Donahue lived with his wife and family. Halloran hadn't received any encouragement when he reached his FBI handlers. They only told him that he should go back to Cape Cod. He was out of his mind to even be in Boston.
Halloran didn't even think twice about it. He figured that nobody would take him out if he was riding with an unknown civilian. But Whitey had followed Weeks with a specially tricked-out Chevy Malibu SS, nicknamed the tow truck, that could travel at 200 miles per hour, lay out an oil slick, and even emit a smoke screen. As Halloran got into the small blue dots and the Donahue had borrowed from his father for the day, Whitey pulled up beside them. He called Halloran's name and then began blasting away with a high-powered rifle. His accomplice used a shotgun from the back seat, although the weapon quickly jammed. Donahue was killed instantly, but even after numerous rounds, Whitey noticed that Halloran had actually gotten out of the car and was stumbling down the street. Bulger made a U-turn and pumped a few more bullets into him, weeks watching Halloran's body bouncing up and down with each shot. The tow truck then sped in the direction of South Boston. Halloran was still alive when EMTs got there. He died shortly thereafter, but not before he told cops on the scene who asked that he thought he was shot by a Winterhill criminal named Jimmy Flynn. Whitey had worn a blonde wig with a mustache, which accidentally resembled Flynn. Not only did John Conley use that information to incriminate Flynn within the FBI, he and John Morris secretly met with Whitey 10 days later at Bolger's Quincy Condominium. And after several beers, Morris let Whitey know that an FBI agent keeping an eye on Halloran spotted the license plate on the tow truck. Bolger made sure to have Weeks hide the vehicle in a garage until they could dismantle and destroy it. After this bit of intelligence, Whitey was in a beneficent mood when he was subsequently contacted by John Conley with a delicate request. John Morris was in Georgia at a two-week training session, and both FBI agents were wondering if Whitey could spring for an airline ticket for Morris's secretary. John and the woman were involved in an ongoing affair, but on an FBI agent's salary, such an indulgence was a luxury. Within a few days, Conley delivered to Morris's secretary a plain white envelope with $1,000 in cash, telling her that her boss had saved the money over many months to surprise her. Bon voyage! The secretary took a few days off and headed to Logan Airport and Atlanta. Although some individual agents were taken aback at how shabbily Halloran was abandoned and even betrayed, Conley had nothing to fear, the Anjula wiretaps providing information that would lead to a comprehensive indictment. Even Washington was now aware of the progress being made. Any other investigations were practically incidental. John Conley decided that now was the time to proactively manipulate his informants in a mutually beneficial way. Several law enforcement entities, including FBI agents in the Boston office, wanted to pursue the World Highlight case and were intent on interviewing John Callahan. John Conley first convinced Whitey that it was only a matter of time before Callahan rolled and gave everybody up. It didn't take much to convince the homicidal Bolger. His quandary was how to do it. There was one obvious individual who would receive the assignment. John Martirano was summoned to a meeting at a hotel near LaGuardia Airport. Whitey explained to him that Brian Halloran implicated Martirano for the killing of Roger Wheeler. Bolger then dubiously claimed that he had personally killed Halloran to protect Martirano. Yes, Callahan was on their side, but Whitey kept emphasizing that if he flipped, they would all go to prison permanently. Martirano protested that Callahan had helped him. They went way back. He had set him up in Florida when he was a fugitive. They were actually very close friends. Whitey persisted in a manner that made it clear that this really was a non-negotiable situation. Martirano was savvy enough to realize 
that if he didn't kill Callahan, somebody else would, and his payback was likely to be similar. Reluctantly, the hitman agreed. Conley even filed a fake report indicating that an informant claimed that Callahan was involved with drug importation with a gang of Cubans. This was even before the inevitable outcome. It took a while, but in August of 1982, John Martirano convinced Callahan to come on down to hang out and party at Callahan's plantation Florida condo. With the same conspirator that helped him with Roger Wheeler, Martirano picked up Callahan at the airport, walked him into a parking garage, and as Callahan made himself comfortable in the front seat of Martirano's van, removed a twenty-two caliber pistol hidden underneath the middle row of seats and buried two shots in the back of Callahan's head. The two men then drove separately out of the parking structure, went to a garage where Callahan's Cadillac was parked, and loaded the dead man's body into the trunk. The car was then driven back to the Miami airport, where Callahan's body was discovered a few days later. To throw investigators off of the trail, Martirano also took Callahan's watch, wallet, and any other related items pertaining to the dead man and left them in a bar bathroom in Little Havana. The inference that Callahan had run afoul of his John Conley-invented Cuban business partners. With four murders linking them to the World Highlight Conspiracy, Whitey and Fleming cooled it for a while, but anger and greed soon got the best of them, and their murderous rampage resumed a year later, starting with Arthur Bucky Barrett. Barrett was one of the masterminds behind the Memorial Day 1980 Depositors Trust in Medford Bank Heist that netted as much as $50 million. No one knew exactly how much because six robbers, including three crooked cops, had spent all weekend rifling through deposit boxes with no record of their contents. Barrett was shrewd enough to give $100,000 to the Angelos and $100,000 to Frank Salemi, a mafioso who could initially insulate him from Bolger and Fleming. But then Bucky made the mistake of getting involved with marijuana and Joe Murray in South Boston without paying tribute, and a front Bolger would not tolerate Barrett was lured to a South Boston house by another South Boston mobster loosely affiliated with Bolger named Pat Nee. There he was subdued by Bolger, Fleming, and Kevin Weeks, tortured and extorted for all of the cash he could raise in an afternoon, and then shot in the head. He was buried under the dirt floor of the home's unfinished basement. Other than some minor headlines that he had gone missing, Barrett wasn't particularly missed. On September 19, 1983, whatever attention Barrett's disappearance might have generated was completely obscured by a bombshell that detonated within the Boston crime community. Gennaro Jerry Angiulo, four of his brothers, and two other criminal associates were arrested by the FBI, the result of a sweeping federal indictment that eventually sent most of the Boston Mafia to jail permanently. John Conley was locally praised in media as the FBI agent who organized the arrest. His picture, leading Frank Angelo, the crime family bookkeeper, in handcuffs into the federal courthouse on the front page of the Boston Globe, gave him national prominence within the Bureau. It also cemented his relationship with Whitey and Fleming as untouchable. With the Angelos gone, Whitey Bolger was now the kingpin of any relevant New England racketeering. 
John Conley's gain was also his gain, a strategic maneuver of Machiavellian intrigue. And his new stature did nothing to diminish his zeal in personally meeting out street justice. It also strengthened his pipeline to Conley, who continued to provide him with important intel. In November of 1984, Conley let Whitey know that an associate of his, John McIntyre, might be snitching to the DEA and U.S. Customs Police. McIntyre, who helped operate boats in Joe Murray's marijuana operation, served as an engineer on the ship Valhalla that sailed to Ireland as part of a plot arranged by Whitey and other gangsters to deliver a massive amount of weapons to the IRA, Whitey's equivalent of community service. The Valhalla rendezvoused off of the Irish coast with another Irish-based ship, the Marita Ann, and delivered the weapons. But an IRA informant tipped off Irish law enforcement, and the Marita Ann was intercepted before even making landfall. The Valhalla made it back to Boston, and the crew avoided immediate arrest for the gun running, but within a few days, McIntyre was picked up by Quincy police for climbing into the window of the home of his hostile ex-wife, and under arrest, a warrant check revealed an unresolved DWI. After six unpaid weeks at sea and looking at some serious charges, McIntyre made the short-sighted decision to attempt to cut a deal by implicating Bulger, Flemmy, and even Joe Murray over drug dealing and gun running, among other things. Having given up on the FBI, Quincy detectives were already trying to work with the DEA to nail Whitey on drug charges, and the agency was brought into the case. Unfortunately, protocol called for the FBI to also provide a case officer. And although it was not John Conley, it was not long before Whitey got word from Conley that, although he did not have exact details, someone from the Valhalla was talking to other federal agencies. Because McIntyre was from Quincy and the FBI was working with the Quincy police, Whitey presumed it was McIntyre, but he wanted to be sure. He cooked up a sly scheme whereby Pat Nee, supposedly as an emissary from Joe Murray, would go to McIntyre and claim that he was putting together a marijuana deal and McIntyre could get involved if he could raise $20,000. They knew McIntyre was broke, but if he put together the money quickly, it could only have been fronted by one source the feds. Within days, McIntyre said he was in, and that was enough for Whitey. Bolger then instructed Nee to lure McIntyre to the same house where Bucky Barrett was murdered, which made sense because it was Nee's brother's house, the brother spending most of his time in New Hampshire. Nee told McIntyre that he needed to drop off some beer in South Boston for a party that night and said to McIntyre that he could come if he liked. On a Friday afternoon in late November, John McIntyre, carrying a case of Miller Lite, followed Pat Nee into the house. He was never seen alive again. It would be decades before any specifics about his death were revealed. With two bodies now buried in its basement, Whitey Bolger began referring to the Nee house as the Haunty. The cellar would have another permanent guest, Deborah Hussey, Steve Fleming's quasi-stepdaughter. Although he and Marion Hussey never married, he lived within the Hussey household and was perceived as the father and the family. That is, until Deborah Hussey revealed that Fleming had molested her sexually, beginning when she was a young teenager. As an adult, Debbie developed a serious drug addiction and resorted to prostitution to feed her habit. Arrested on numerous occasions, she frequently name-dropped both Fleming and Bolger to the police. 
She also took to hanging around the triple O's and demanding drinks from the customers or hitting up Southie dope dealers for freebies, bragging that she had connections to Whitey, another big red flag. Bolger believed her to be a dangerous loose cannon and began pushing Fleming to do something about it. In early January 1985, Fleming did. He got her to meet him by feigning guilt over what had happened between them and the general situation with her mother. He asked to make it up to her by taking her clothes shopping and telling her he was thinking of buying her her own place. Why don't we stop by and take a look and see if you like it? The house in question was the haunty. Whitey was waiting when they got there and quickly moved to strangle her. Things did not go smoothly, and Debbie fought desperately for her life. An eventual autopsy concluded that she had broken ribs, a broken nose and shoulder blade, and her windpipe was crushed. Ultimately, her teeth were removed by Flemmy, and her body was placed in the cellar next to McIntyre and Barrett. Within a few months, Pat Nee passed along the news that his brother was going to sell the haunty. At first, Whitey considered buying it himself or putting cement on the floor of the basement, but finally resorted to having the bodies dug up by Weeks and Flemmy, of course, and reburied in a secluded spot near the Deposit River underneath Interstate 93. This horrifying task was accomplished literally on Halloween night, 1985. It would prove to be the conclusion of Whitey's career as a murderer, but his various other schemes would continue unabated, his power and fearful reputation in the city reaching its height in the mid-80s. One such incident demonstrated the brazen mentality of the Bulger crew, even victimizing one of their own. In 1984, Steve and Julie Rakes bought an old gas station on a rotary. They converted it into a liquor store that was doing a brisk business. What happened next depends on who was doing the talking. Steve Rakes claimed that Whitey and Kevin Weeks showed up uninvited at his house. Whitey then went into his standard, There is a contract on your life from other liquor store owners, but we can help you. He then said that he would fix everything as long as the Rakes agreed to sell their liquor store. It is believed that Bolger wanted another location to conduct business and also launder money. When Rakes said the store wasn't for sale, Bulger then began threatening him and Weeks placed a pistol on the kitchen table while Whitey kept unfolding and refolding a stiletto. When Rakes' one-year-old daughter wandered into the kitchen, Bulger said it would be a shame to have her grow up without a father. Bulger tossed a brown paper bag on the kitchen that contained $67,000 in cash. Now we own the liquor store, and so we did, quickly renaming it the South Boston Liquor Mart. Julie Rakes happened to be related to a Boston police detective, her uncle Joe Lundbaum, who knew that John Conley was also from Southie and figured he might be sympathetic. Completely unaware of Conley's relationship with Bulger, the detective telephoned the agent and arranged a sit-down. Conley listened to an account of what happened and then insisted that the only way the FBI would get involved would be if the Rakes agreed to wear a wire an obviously dangerous request that he knew the Rakes would never seriously consider. Not content with squelching any FBI investigation, Conley also told Bulger about the exchange. The very next day, Whitey visited Rakes and told him to stop whining to the FBI. Not only a threat, it also made it clear to the couple that Bulger was getting information directly from the Bureau. As the 80s rolled on, Bolger successfully implemented his extortion routine on various individuals, whether they were criminals or merely successful business people. 
millions of dollars of cash poured in from rent paid by every bookmaker, drug dealer, and racketeer in the greater Boston area. Not only was John Conley and John Morris on the payroll, but other FBI agents were friendly with Bolger, and they also received cash payments. Bolger's famous saying was that Christmas was really only for kids and cops. In exchange, the agency completely ignored or minimized any of his criminal activity. But initially a brilliant strategy, the elimination of the Cosa Nostra as competition eventually began to have a fundamental flaw. Whitey was now king of the hill, but an obvious target of media investigation and public apprehension, especially with a connection to the allegedly legitimate and very powerful Bill Bulger. Even after an FBI agent attempted to intimidate a Boston Globe reporter into dropping an investigation of both Whitey and Billy Bulger, the paper's vaunted spotlight team went ahead with it. Although there were explicit details concerning Whitey Bulger's criminal activities, the most damaging information was that Bulger and John Conley were specifically named as having a special relationship. This detail was confirmed by John Morris anonymously, who, concerned about the potential fallout over his own dealings with Whitey, figured this might get the FBI to drop him as an informant. But Whitey denied the connection privately to people like John Martirano and Kevin Weeks, convincing them that it was just a way to smear Billy and that they only got information from agents on their payroll. They never gave up anything. In the late 80s, another major Bulger scandal developed, but this time it involved Billy, and it required Whitey to bail him out. Bulger's law partner, Thomas Finnerty, had gotten a notorious multimillionaire Boston landlord and developer named Harold Brown to pay Finnerty what he called a consulting fee to help Brown develop a large office building at 75 State Street. In actuality, both men knew that this was a shakedown because if Brown didn't pay, Billy Bulger would make sure his building never got off the ground. But Brown was indicted for bribery of a building inspector, and both Finnerty and Bulger realized that they might be in great jeopardy, Bulger having split the shakedown with his partner. The two men called the payment alone, and Bulger paid it back. When an FBI investigation of the entire matter commenced, Whitey Bulger approached John Morris, gave him an envelope with $5,000 in cash, and told him in no uncertain terms to fix the investigation. With the assistance of John Conley, a cursory meeting with Bill Bulger was conducted, and he was officially exonerated. Eventually, Finnerty laundered the money, and Billy Bulger got his $250,000 back, underlining what many Bostonians always believed that the only difference between Billy and Whitey was that Billy wore a three-piece suit. That Whitey was absolutely an FBI informant was underlined in 1989 when Bulger got into a dispute with a mafia-connected soldier named Sonny Mercurio. Bulger was squeezing a couple of Mercurio-connected bookies for rent payments, and Mercurio told him to back off as they were already kicking into him. Bulger then ratted out Mercurio to Conley, who installed wiretaps on the mafioso's Prudential Center sandwich shop headquarters. The FBI then confronted Mercurio, flipped him as an informant, and got him to reveal the time and location of an actual Cosa Nostra induction ceremony, which they successfully recorded. This was a groundbreaking acquisition of evidence by the FBI, and Conley was personally congratulated by both the Attorney General Dick Thornburg and the FBI Director William Sessions.
Within the Bureau, Conley was hailed as an expert on the use of informants. Mercurio eventually went into the witness protection program after over 20 individuals were indicted as a result of this investigation. A local law enforcement hero, John Conley, decided to retire from the FBI in 1990, taking a job as security chief and PR guy for Boston Edison a corporate gig with a higher salary and perks that were a big step up from the FBI. Whitey and Steve Fleming were both getting older as well and figured it might be time to do their own retirement planning. Fleming invested a lot of his ill-gotten gains into legitimate Boston real estate and Whitey stashed cash and safe deposit boxes all over the world. While the FBI protected him, the DEA was intent on arresting him and almost did when they conducted a prosecution of over 50 individuals connected with the sale and distribution of cocaine in South Boston. Whitey's name was prominently mentioned as providing protection in exchange for a cut. Instead, as an informant, prosecutors allowed the FBI to investigate and indict Whitey on their own. Needless to say, that didn't happen. Whitey's financial planning received another legitimate shot in the arm when he and three other men came forward as the alleged winners of a $14.3 million jackpot in the Massachusetts lottery. Despite subsequent claims that Whitey actually strong-armed or paid a lump sum to get his share of the ticket, it still was recorded and he stood to collect $80,000 a year for the rest of his life an excellent source of legitimate income should the IRS ever attempt to clamp down on him. As always, Whitey Bulger was quite wise to anticipate threats to his remarkable run of success. The Massachusetts State Police was also among the various entities that had unsuccessfully pursued Bulger for years, but they never gave up and, realizing attempting to work with the FBI was a waste of time, resorted to working with other agencies to develop a case against the Flemmy Bulger gang Knowing that it was futile to attempt to flip anyone close to Bulger or anyone reliant on Bill Bulger's massive political patronage network, the special service section under Tom Foley, who reported directly to the head of the state police, looked for individuals who were both external to South Boston and upset about Whitey's ongoing rent, essentially nothing more than extortion. They came close to a dream potential informant when Howie Winter, after parole on the race-fixing sentence, was busted for dealing cocaine. But Howie decided to do his time rather than rat, drawing ten more years. Attention then focused on Burton Chico Kranz, the head of a major bookmaking ring that operated in the affluent suburbs west of Boston. The state police raided his Chestnut Hill home twice, eventually seizing a safe deposit box key that led to the confiscation of over $1 million in cash and implicating his wife in a potential money laundering charge. Secretly, Kranz made a deal and detailed his extensive history of dealings with Bolger and Flemmy. No longer at the FBI, Conley could only elicit bits and pieces about the investigation from friendly agents and had no in with the federal prosecutor that Foley was working with, Fred Wyshack. Wyshack was from New York, had no connection to the Angelo or Mercurio prosecutions, and was intent on knocking out Whitey. By mid-1994, Whitey was certainly aware of the potential legal problems he faced, but he was also about to be confronted with a sudden upheaval in his personal life. One fall evening in 1994, Teresa Stanley was sitting alone in her home when she got a call. A woman introduced herself as Catherine Grieg, 
said she had some important information about Jim Bolger and asked if she could pick her up in a few minutes and speak privately somewhere else. Appearing a few minutes later, Grieg then drove the two of them in silence to her home that she shared with Whitey and Quincy. With both of them sitting down in the living room, Grieg recounted that she had been Whitey's mistress for close to 20 years, that he supported her, and that she not only knew about Stanley, but that she was tired of it all and wanted Jim to choose between the two of them. Stanley was completely blindsided by this disclosure, was even mortified by the idea that she had spent 30 years with a man who had utterly deceived both her and her family. As their conversation proceeded, there was a pounding on the door. It was Whitey Bulger and Kevin Weeks. Typically, Whitey commanded Teresa Stanley to leave immediately with him, but instead she started screaming at him, calling him a liar, and telling him that Catherine had told her everything. Grieg also started yelling at him, telling him that he would have to choose between the two of them. Such an assault on Whitey's perpetual need to dominate, especially the women in his life, must have short-circuited something in his already overly stressed psyche. In a rage, Bulger grabbed Grieg by the neck and dragged her to the floor, strangling her with both of his hands. Kevin Weeks understood the potential gravity of the situation and was able to forcibly disentangle the two. Grieg, struggling to breathe, staggered away from Bulger's proximity. Bolger again barked at Stanley that she needed to leave with him, and this time she did leave, but Teresa continued screaming at Whitey on the ride home, repeatedly calling him a liar when he tried to explain that he had broken it off with Grieg, and that was why Grieg had reached out to her. He finally calmed her down, promising her a long European vacation. That proposition was probably prompted by Whitey's knowledge that a grand jury was about to conclude its examination of the information provided by the state police and he needed to access a safe deposit box in London, where he stashed a considerable amount of cash and his Irish passport. When he returned to Southie just a few days before Christmas, Bulger got word from Weeks that he needed to stop in at the liquor mart John Conley had come by and delivered the news that an indictment of Whitey, Flemmy, and mafia mobster Frank Salemi was imminent on federal racketeering and extortion charges related to the Stady's bookie investigation. Because these were federal offenses, the Mass State Police and the U.S. Attorney's Office had to inform the FBI of this development, and based on protocol, even had to involve them in subsequent arrests. Salemi was able to evade police and was not arrested. Whitey quickly informed Teresa Stanley that for Christmas and the holidays, they were about to embark on a lengthy ride to the Deep South. Teresa wasn't enthusiastic, but at this point agreed to go on the trip. Weeks also told Flemmy about the indictment, but the rifleman shrugged it off, especially when he heard it involved racketeering and not murder. He always believed that his FBI informant status would indemnify him even if it ever went to trial, and he didn't even bother to flee. On January 5th, he was arrested in downtown Boston by the DEA and Massachusetts State Police, including Tom Foley. Frank Salemi also figured that it was a good time to scram and avoided arrest for eight months. Bulger took Teresa Stanley to New Orleans for New Year's Eve in Clearwater, Florida, to pick up some cash and fake ID he had stashed there in advance of such a predicament. Keeping in touch with Weeks every day, Whitey heard in early January that nothing had happened, so he decided that maybe Conley was wrong, and it was just a false alarm. He and Teresa got as far as Connecticut, 
when they heard on the radio that Steve Fleming was under arrest. Bolger immediately turned the car around and headed in the eventual direction of Manhattan and Long Island. He was no longer James J. Bolger, but according to a New York driver's license, he carried Thomas Baxter. Fifteen years earlier, Bolger had stolen the identity of a Thomas F. Baxter of Woburn, Mass., who died in 1979. First Whitey got a Massachusetts license with his photo, but Baxter's name, birth date, and social security number, and renewed it properly. Eventually, he acquired a New York driver's license in 1990, using an address of some distant cousins of Kevin Weeks. He then bought a brand-new Mercury Grand Marquis, trading in his 1991 vehicle and paying with a bank check. In the immediate aftermath of Whitey's flight from justice, one fundamental became clear. Teresa Stanley was not cut out for life on the run, missed her children, and still was upset over Catherine Grieg's revelations. Bolger secretly agreed to return to the Boston area, where he dropped her off at a Chili's restaurant parking lot in Hingham, Mass., near where one of her daughters lived. After 30 years, they parted, Whitey saying only, See ya! Unbeknownst to Stanley, Whitey's next stop was a beach parking lot in Dorchester, where he rendezvoused with Catherine Grieg, who was carefully delivered by Kevin Weeks. Carrying only a small bag and her sister's driver's license, she told her twin sibling to take care of her two dogs. Their first hideout location was in Grand Isle, Louisiana, a quirky bayou resort area in the summertime, separated from the mainland by a causeway. They arrived in the early 1995 off-season, when the town has only about 1,500 residents. They befriended a local younger couple, passing as an older retired husband with a younger wife, well off enough to travel where and whenever they wanted to. They bought expensive appliances and gifts for the family's children, including eyeglasses, and frequently ate dinner in the couple's home. They frequently left the area for weeks at a time. License plate checks were actually recorded on Long Island and in Wyoming. But Helen and Tom Baxter always came back to Grand Isle. But in the summer of 1996, the couple disappeared from the area, never to return, their exit not coincidental. From the moment the DOJ and state police confided in the FBI, the Bureau's conduct regarding apprehending especially Whitey Bulger smacked of an incompetence that was at times comical and frequently seemed deliberate. Stretched thin during the initial hunt for Bulger, Flemmy, and Salemi, Mass State Police and Tom Foley told the FBI to stake out Teresa Stanley's house. After Flemmy's arrest, Foley eventually arrived in the area and was told by FBI agents that they hadn't seen anything important. Foley figured the best way to find out if Bolger was in the house would be to knock on the door and see who opened it. Leaving most of his people on the sidewalks, Foley and an FBI agent approached the doorway and rang the bell, and when an older woman answered, Foley informed her crisply that they were there with a warrant to search the home of Teresa Stanley. The resident was taken aback, but then explained that Stanley's house was four doors down. Foley wondered if the FBI had staked out the wrong house on purpose. A few minutes later, they broke down the door of Teresa Stanley's actual house, but nobody was there. One of the reasons that Foley was so strapped for arresting manpower was that two of his colleagues were in Boca Raton, Florida. During his investigation of Chico Kranz's bookmaking network, one of Foley's men turned up phone records of a bookie who was known to be tight with John Martirano. 
These records indicated constant phone calls to a number in the Boca Raton area that couldn't be linked to any other member of the Kranz network, and diligent auditing of covert audio tapes turned up Martirano's alias of Vincent Rancor. Foley and his staff guessed that this might be Martirano. Two of his men went to South Florida, asked the Florida DMV for Vincent Rancor's address, and even got a look at his driver's license photo, which seemed to match. Within days, they positively identified Martirano, but had to wait on the FBI. The agent in charge of Martirano's case requested that an FBI agent be present when Martirano was arrested. Everybody understood that for the state police to locate a high-level fugitive in a matter of days after the FBI couldn't find him for 15 years looked terrible for the Bureau. But again, the state police had no choice. When Martirano was arrested outside of his van in a strip mall parking lot, an FBI agent was present, and in subsequent press accounts, the FBI took credit for the arrest. They also announced a fugitive task force to hunt down Whitey, that included the agent that didn't even know where Teresa Stanley's house was. It would take this task force over a year to contact Teresa Stanley, and then this was only by letter. Still angry about Whitey taking off with Catherine Grieg and Bolger's behavior in general, Stanley actually reached out to the FBI on her own, saying she had some interesting information. And in a subsequent meeting, she was asked casually if she knew what alias Whitey might be using. Not only did she give them the name of Thomas Baxter, but she took them to Selden, New York, and the garage where Whitey kept one of his two grand marquees. It was there. Whitey was currently using another automobile. The car also had receipts from Grand Isle, Louisiana. A few weeks later, Kevin Weeks dropped by Teresa Stanley's house. Weeks was in frequent telephone contact with Whitey and told him that Stanley had taken up with another local shady character that Bulger intensely disliked. Weeks was there to try and convince her to break it off with this individual, a known police informant. Stanley was already nervous about the info which he had given to the FBI. She did not want to be responsible for his capture. She anxiously blurted out what she had furnished to the Bureau, including the alias and the car location. As Weeks had no way to contact Whitey, he had to wait for Whitey to contact him. By May of 1996, Whitey was gone driving with Grieg in his second Mercury to Chicago and leaving it there for an associate of weeks to pick up. Thomas Baxter was no more. They were now Mark and Carol Shapton, weeks arranging for more forged documents and delivering them to Whitey in New York City. During his initial 18 months as a fugitive, Whitey repeatedly contacted individuals from his former life. He called John Morris from a South Boston payphone, reaching him at Morris's new assignment at the FBI Training Academy in Quantico, Virginia. When he got Morris on the phone, he told him that he knew that Morris was the source for the Globe information that he was an informant for the FBI, and that if Morris didn't get the paper to print a complete retraction, Bolger claimed he had all of their phone calls on tape, and he would make sure that Morris went to prison if Whitey was ever prosecuted. Whitey also screamed at Morris that he knew he leaked the information because he was hoping Whitey would be killed, eliminating Morris's culpability, a not-so-far-fetched allegation. Morris was so distraught he eventually had a heart attack, and when Whitey heard about it from Weeks via Conley, the news thoroughly delighted Bolger. Whitey also talked to both of his brothers, an interaction that Bill Bolger initially denied, as well as also refusing to even meet with the FBI or any other law enforcement entity to discuss his knowledge of his brother's whereabouts. 
but after one more dinner encounter in New York, in which Kevin Weeks afterwards last saw Whitey Bulger descend down the steps of Penn Station, the fugitive ceased all physical contact with anyone associated with his true identity. No one, including Weeks, would know his actual whereabouts for many years. Although there continued to be numerous calls to both of his brothers, especially Jackie, to handle requisite business payments concerning safe deposit boxes, property taxes, and the like, these also eventually ended, Bulger aware that he needed to cut all ties. By the late 90s, with Whitey Bulger having clearly evaded law enforcement for years after official confirmation that he and Flemmy were informants for the FBI, scrutiny turned to those in custody who colluded with Bulger during his reign of terror. Naturally, the main focus would be on Flemmy, who was attempting to get the racketeering charges dismissed, claiming that his status as an informant for the FBI granted him immunity. While this effort failed... A federal judge, Mark Wolf, held a lengthy hearing that delved into the conduct of the FBI and the details of their interaction with Fleming and Bulger, among other things. Wolf initially and shockingly ruled that Fleming and Bulger were offered immunity by the FBI and the government would have to honor that agreement. However, this ruling was tossed out on appeal. Additionally, now under arrest and facing his own prosecution, John Martirano, enraged by the revelation about Whitey and Flemmy's informant status, agreed to cut a deal. He knew now that John Conley was able to keep Whitey and Flemmy out of the race-fixing indictments while he, Martirano, was forced to go on the lam for 15 years. As he stated subsequently, despite his lifelong aversion to those who snitched to the cops, in Flemmy and Whitey's case, he believed that you can't rat out a rat. In a deal that was quite controversial, Martirano got 14 years for admitting to 19 murders. In 1999, Kevin Weeks was finally charged in the racketeering scheme that was the original basis for Fleming and Whitey's indictment. With no resources to fight the charges, having been abandoned by both Bulger and Flemmy, and understanding that his two associates had actually snitched on some of their criminal associates, Weeks also agreed to cooperate. In his case, that included not only details about murder, but bodies as well, a crucial element. He quickly led investigators to the Bulger burial ground, the DEA, IRS, and Massachusetts State Police, but not the FBI, then excavated several bodies, including all three victims murdered at the Haunty and Deborah Davis. For his cooperation, Weeks was sentenced to five years in prison. This turn of events, as well as the potential of facing a death penalty in Oklahoma and Florida, prompted Steve Fleming to cut his own deal, essentially agreeing to life in prison without parole. This was all very bad news for John Conley. He was indicted for racketeering involving the tip to Whitey et al. about their impending indictments, and Conley was convicted in 2002, receiving the maximum sentence of 10 years. But his legal troubles were not over. Understanding that the FBI would never assist in any real prosecution relative to Conley's behavior, Fred Wyshack encouraged a local prosecutor in Florida to put together a murder case against Conley involving the death of John Callahan. Despite the FBI literally attempting to stop Wyshack from providing a trove of incriminating documents in the case, the prosecutor drove the material to Florida himself in a U-Haul and refused specific demands from the FBI to allow them to review what documents were being provided, essentially a tactic to extract and remove as much of the material as possible. 
Weeks, Fleming, and Martirano all testified at Conley's murder trial, a proceeding which resulted in another conviction and a sentence of 40 years in jail. Weeks also rolled on Jackie Bulger. Whitey was wise to not involve his brother Billy too deeply in his post-flight affairs, but was not as discreet with Jackie. Jackie not only helped with providing false IDs, he frequently spoke to his brother by telephone and lied to a grand jury about all of it. With weeks set to testify, the younger Bolger brother copped a plea. Six months in prison, six months of house arrest. But the real kicker for Jackie was that the state of Massachusetts attempted to strip him of his pension, earned while at his political patronage job as a magistrate in the juvenile court system, considering perjury gross malfeasance. Jackie fought tooth and nail but eventually lost his case and his pension on appeal. The Bolger family also fought attempts by the government to seize Whitey's lottery winnings, his sister going to court repeatedly but ultimately unsuccessfully. Bill Bolger never faced any formal prosecution for anything related to Whitey Bolger, but he did suffer some fallout from his relationship with his wayward brother. In 2003, he was called before a congressional committee that was formed following revelations concerning the FBI, the DOJ, and their relationship with Whitey. Initially, Bill refused to even testify, invoking the Fifth Amendment. Ultimately, he was given immunity, but his subsequent testimony in which he admitted that he would not recommend that Whitey turn himself in and would never do anything to assist the investigation of his brother caused outrage. Although Bulger was long gone from his position as Senate president, his now high-paying sinecure as president of UMass Boston was threatened by then-Governor Mitt Romney, who demanded his resignation. Public scorn eventually prompted his exit, but not before receiving close to a million-dollar severance package and a $196,000 annual pension that would increase over time, today close to $300,000. Almost as shameful as the FBI contact was to begin with was the DOJ's response to the numerous civil lawsuits filed against the FBI for the wrongful deaths of their loved ones. These families wanted to hold the FBI liable for allowing two remarkably violent men to run amok and even colluding with the killers in some cases. But rather than acknowledging malfeasance, the DOJ dug in. They initially attempted to quash the lawsuits under a statute of limitations argument that claimed that Judge Wolf's hearing and his subsequent report started the clock running on a time limit to file any lawsuit. In several instances, this assertion was accepted, and only seven cases were ever even successfully brought to trial. In one of these cases concerning Michael Donahue's family, the DOJ attorney involved attempted to portray the family as racist in front of a black judge because they eventually moved out of the neighborhood as it gradually integrated from its former all-white demographic. In fact, Pat Donahue, her husband, the family breadwinner, dead, was forced to sell the house because she couldn't afford it. Olga Davis, Deborah Davis's mother, had to endure another DOJ attorney, stating that, that she really didn't suffer that much as a result of her daughter's murder. She could console herself with her nine other children. Only five cases ever successfully collected damages from the U.S. government, with payments in the neighborhood of $13 million for five victims. Two cases involving sizable awards, including the Donahue's, were tossed out on appeal the appellate courts accepting that the statute of limitations applied and the plaintiffs filed too late. 
But these developments were all dwarfed by the one overriding question that dominated any examination of the Bolger case. Where's Whitey? As more than a decade dragged on with the trail only getting colder, the question resonated powerfully, especially in New England, where the mobster now enjoyed an almost cult-like status. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Whitey Bulger. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Black Mass by Dick Lear and Gerard O'Connell, Whitey, The Life of America's Most Notorious Crime Boss by Dick Lear and Gerard O'Connell, Whitey Bulger, America's Most Wanted Gangster by Kevin Cullen and Shelley Murphy, Most Wanted, Pursuing Whitey Bulger by Thomas J. Foley, Whitey on Trial by Margaret McLean and John Lieberman. A small portion of this material previously appeared in the December 7, 2017 edition of the Washington Babylon in the article entitled Whitey Bulger and the FBI. What did Robert Mueller know and when did he know it? By Philip D. Gibbons. Numerous articles from the Boston Herald and Boston Globe were consulted, as well as the audio archives of radio station WBUR-FM Boston. And thanks to James Dirt Donovan, Somerville, Mass., special consultant on Howie Winter and the Winter Hill Mob. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, Please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige, and also rate us on iTunes. If you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. <laughs>